I'm pretty big on giving definitions of things because I think it helps us to understand what we're really talking about. And I want you to notice that hope is both a noun and a verb. It says that hope is a feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. And as a verb, it is to look forward to with desire and reasonable confidence, to believe, desire, or trust, to feel that something desired may happen. So I thought it was interesting. I had never really put it in the context before that it was both a noun and a verb. And we will be coming back to this definition probably at least one more time throughout this message today. I want to do a little bit of a review. I think that that's pretty important. Uh, it just kind of helps us to move forward uh, into the message for today. The first thing is that, uh, is that we are a new creation in Christ. When we come to know the Lord, he has created us brand new. And we are connected with God and thereby become ambassadors of reconciliation and hope to the world. That's what our job description is, is to, to bring hope to the world. We sang that song, uh, the, the Christmas song, the, I think the, actually the second song, it says, Jesus, hope for the world. And we are to take that message of hope to the world. And God equips us to do that. And he equips us to do what he, what he is doing in the moment. Um, so we're able to touch others in that moment. And how are we able to do that? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. God lives in us. You know... Um, they, they called Jesus Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. And at the time of his birth, he was physically with them, but now that he's not physically here, God is still with us. He is still Emmanuel to us. He lives with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is why we, you and I, are the hope for the world because of the Spirit that lives in us. You know, we have this great commission to bring this hope to the weary, the wary, and the fearful in the world that we live in. The thing about hope is that it perseveres in the absence of no results. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But I thought that that was, that's, a, that's what hope is. When, even when you don't see it. You know, hope, faith, and love are, are pretty much... They're really connected together. But, but hope perseveres in the absence of no results. Hope also has a waiting component to it. It's like being pregnant. There's waiting with expectancy and an outcome. Um, unlike pregnancy, where you generally have a knowledge of when to expect that baby to arrive, sometimes with hope we don't know. We hope, though. We wait. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Well, the word deferred means it's late, overdue, postponed, or tardy. And sometimes we, that's the type of hope we have. We have a hope that's been deferred. And we know that it says that it makes us sick, and it can and that hope deferred can turn into hopelessness, which we will talk a little bit more about. But I'm sure that many of us have at one time or another experienced hope deferred. 
And then Romans 8, 24 and 25 says that hope that is seen is not hope. It says in the scripture, but in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And then I would add to that expectantly as well. And lastly, faith is activated by hope. And we'll talk a little bit more about that aspect of hope later. And that wasn't the last one. The last one is that hope matures us in the process. Romans 5, 2 through 5 says, And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because... We know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And this is really the verse that we're going to concentrate on today. As we can see, hope can have its beginning in suffering. And we see a progression. We see that we rejoice in our sufferings. As we do that, suffering produces perseverance. Then perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. So there's a process, and the end result is to take us to hope. So how do we, as God's ambassadors who struggle with hopelessness ourselves sometimes, how do we bring light and hope to others? Well, I don't know about you, but if you've ever experienced suffering in one form or another, it's not always easy to rejoice, but God calls us to that in spite of it being easy or not. The Christian walk with God is not an easy walk, and it seems counterintuitive to the world. There are potential causes of suffering or despair. I'm, I'm going to name a few of them. The first one is going to be pain. It can be physical, emotional, or mental. You know, there are many people who have chronic pain. That's suffering. Then there's broken relationships. You might be estranged from your family or from good friends. Um, it could be due to hurt feelings, distrust, anger, resentment. This, too, is painful. You might have financial difficulties. You may have been set back financially for one reason or another. Maybe you've lost a job. And maybe that loss wasn't because you weren't good at your job, but it just be, could be because of the economy. You know, oil has a way of uh, when it goes up, people lose their jobs, and when it goes down, people lose their jobs. So I have yet to figure out oil other than the fact that it seems to uh, affect people's jobs one way or the other, sometimes negatively. You know, but the truth is it doesn't really matter what the reason is that you've lost your job. You still have lost your job. And uh, you may not have enough money in reserve to get you through. Maybe you've overextended yourself on credit cards. That causes financial hardship. Maybe you've invested money in something and it didn't work and you lost it. You lost your investment. Maybe because of your physical sufferings, you weren't able to work which can also cause financial hardship. You know, there are also external factors that can bring about 
hardship, suffering, or despair. Could be things like loss of a home due to fire or flood. You know, many people this past spring in our area lost their homes. Maybe not completely, but there are people that I know in Angleton or know of, I don't know them personally, they're kind of friends of a friend, who still aren't in their homes after the floods that happened in May. Um, Danielle's parents lost their home to a flood last year. And all the, all the red tape that you have to go through, it's a hardship. It, it, it's suffering. It can cause despair. Possibly you've been in an accident, a car accident, a work accident. Those would be external factors that could bring about suffering and despair. Lastly, I put political, and I'm not really talking about our elections this past um, month. As much as I'm talking about that there are people in the world that live in places where death is an everyday occurrence at the hands of the government. They suffer injustice and death because of cruel dictatorships across the, across the world. You know, you're familiar with them. It could be Somalia. It could be Rwanda. It could be Iran. It could be, you know, just about any place. So that is also can bring suffering and despair. Well, the scripture gives us a few examples of some people who, um, who suffered. Leslie, why don't you come on up? She's going to read for us um, at this microphone here. But before she reads the passage, I want her to read. This is about Job. I want you to realize, and you probably already do, the scriptures really don't read like a graphic novel. Many, many times it reads uh, something like uh, Joe Friday from Dragnet is attributed to saying, just the facts, ma'am. So you read the scripture and it's just kind of one thing after another. It can be a bit dry with no emotion emanating from the people. Um, we get a better glimpse of where David pours out his heart in the Psalms. And you can see and feel and possibly relate to some of his anguish and some of the suffering that he's gone through. But other than that, you know, there will be times you'll read scriptures that says, and they killed 5,000 people in one day. That's it. No emotion, no nothing. And we know that there's emotion that comes from those things. We have to kind of read between the lines. So I want you to keep that in mind as Leslie reads to us this morning. Yes. Can you hear me? Let's see. Can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay. I'm going to read from Job chapter 1, verses 13 through 22 in the um, NIV version. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on their camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. 
While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So, we hear this story. And if we're just reading, it just, it just seems like words. And then, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. And we don't really see any emotion until the very end. And what was Job's first response? It was to fall down and worship God and recognize that he is God. So it's, I think it's kind of difficult to put ourselves in his place. Those are very dramatic events that happen, very unusual but there are people who've been through that type of suffering. So we're just going to, you know, break this down bit by bit. At first, you know, the news is that they were attacked by the Sabaeans and the oxen and donkeys were stolen and they killed Job's servants. I do want to say that, I, that Job's suffering comes from an external source and that was Satan. Satan is an external source. He had approached God. Actually, God had approached Satan and said, do you see my servant Job? And if you want to know more of that, you can, you can go read that for yourself. So that was the first thing. And then the next one is that fire fell from heaven and sheep and servants were burned up. All right. And then we see the Chaldeans came and the camels were stolen and more servants were killed. Last, we see that sons and daughters were killed by a mighty wind. They all died. Their house collapsed upon them. Job lost everything that was precious to him. Everything. His children, his servants, his livestock. And then an interesting thing happened is that his righteousness began to be questioned by his wife, who was the only living relative he had, and some good friends of his. The prevailing thought at that time was that God, surely God would not allow such tragedy to befall a righteous man, so there must be sin somewhere in his life. But Job knew in his heart of hearts that there was no sin. He hadn't sinned. Not that he was sinless, but that there was nothing in his life that would have caused this kind of um, suffering to befall him. And so he suffers alone. He has no support system, uh, no human support. And actually, he really thought he didn't have any support from God either. And I want to read to you, uh, my Bible has um, some notes in it that I, I like a lot. And I want to read to you what this commentator said. It says, so God lets the adversary have his way with Job within specified limits, so that God and the righteous Job may be vindicated and the great accuser silenced. 
Thus comes the anguish of Job, robbed of every sign of God's favor so that God becomes for him the great enigma. Also, his righteousness is assailed on earth through the logic of the orthodox theology at the time of it by his friends. Alone he agonizes, but he knows in his heart that his godliness has been authentic and that someday he will be vindicated. And in spite of all, though he may curse the day of his birth and chide God for, not, for treating him unjustly, which was an uncalculated outcry of his distraught spirit, he did not curse God as his wife and the humans near his heart proposes. In fact, what pains him most is God's apparent alienation from him. In the end, the adversary is silenced, and the astute theologians, Job's friends, are silenced as well. And even Job is silenced, but God is not. And when he speaks, it is to Job that he speaks. That's a man that went through quite a bit of suffering. Next that I, person in the scripture I want to talk about is Joseph. You may or may not be familiar with him, but he was one of 12 sons, and his, his brothers were very jealous of him. Now, Job, uh, Joseph was younger than most of his brothers, and um, I think to them they thought he was a little cocky. But nonetheless, God had given Job the dreams and the ability to interpret dreams. And his brothers didn't like a dream that he shared with them. And one day they were all out taking care of the sheep. And the brothers were just sick and tired of him. And they were going to kill him. But instead, this uh, group of people, a caravan came along and they were headed to Egypt. And they decided, okay, we're not going to kill him. We're going to sell him as a slave to these people. And, you know, you, again, you read the scripture, it just kind of goes over you. They sold his brother into slavery. Well, today, that would be called human trafficking. Okay? And that takes on a little bit different viewpoint when you see it from that perspective of human trafficking. And then they went home and they told their father that he had been killed by a ferocious animal. Well, Job was fortunate enough to be bought by Potiphar, who was... Um, one of Pharaoh's officials. It's not a bad gig if you're going to be a slave and you're sold. It seemed like he had it made. God blessed him. Everything he did prospered. And Potiphar was pleased to have Joseph as his, um, as his servant. However, not a, it, things don't always work out like you think they're going to. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. And when he refused, she falsely accused him of inappropriate advances. But Potiphar didn't know that they were false accusations. So for that, Joseph was now sent to prison. But God was with him there as well. And the guards trusted him. And he kind of had full reign. And there's lots that goes into this story. But the bottom line is that after many years, while Joseph was in prison... He made an appearance before Pharaoh to interpret a dream that Pharaoh had had. And Pharaoh was so impressed with him that he appointed him in charge of all of Egypt. Suddenly, this young guy who'd been sold into slavery, been in jail for years and years, he becomes second in command of all of Egypt. 
But what we don't see in the scriptures is Joseph's emotions regarding all of the injustice that was put upon him from being sold by his own brothers into slavery. You know, that was kind of the beginning of it all. And even though God had blessed him and had redeemed him, you've got to know that in his heart and in his mind and in his spirit, there had to be some things going on. And, and the story, there's more to the story later, and, and you can read that. I'm not going through the whole thing. He, he finally reconnects with his family, and, and God uh, reunites them. But, you know, we're not really privy to his thoughts of despair that he may have had. The last example from the scripture I want to talk about are Abraham and Sarah. Um, God had promised Abraham that he would have an heir as, you know, as many as the stars in the sky and the, and the sands on the ocean. And Abraham and Sarah, they were married, but they never had a baby. They never had a child. And they kept kind of wondering, okay, God, when is this going to happen? Um, Genesis 15.4 was the promise that God had given him that they, that they would um, have a child. But she was like 90 years old, and he was 100 when they finally had a baby. And I don't think God had given him this promise when she was like 89, okay? I think it was more like she was probably 30, maybe even in her 20s. So would you consider it suffering if God had promised you something that you deeply, deeply desired, but it was 20, 30, 40, or even 50 years before that promise was fulfilled? Could you hang on to that hope that God had given you? And, and God confirmed it again later on, but it still was many, many years before they had a child. Not to mention, after they had Isaac, God told them to go sacrifice him on a mountain. And that's a story for another day. But I will tell you that Abraham was obedient to that. But God provided in that place. And that sacrifice did not take place. So, let's see here. I want to look back at that definition of hope. And I want you to, to look at that, that second one under the verb part, to believe, desire, or trust. Hope can be risky and it can be costly. It was for Job. Job knew in his heart that he was righteous before God, but nobody else did. His friends laughed at him. They argued with him. There was lots of conversation and discourse back and forth, but they just did not believe about his righteousness before God. You know, in, in any of these situations, whether it's Job or Joseph or Abraham and Sarah, I think many of us would have given up. What was there to be hopeful about? You know, a promise from 30 years ago? I don't know. I'd be questioning, did I really hear God? Did I really hear him? You remember uh, last week, Bill talked about this woman who was a quadriplegic that they'd met on the airplane. You know, what did this woman have to be hopeful about? When she was 18 years old, she had this accident at the beach where she dived in the water and broke her neck and became a quadriplegic. What is there to be hopeful about that? By all appearances, some would say that she really didn't have much to offer life and life didn't have much to offer her. But yet, in spite of her circumstances, she was spread joy and hope by her godly behavior. And 
you know, she, she went to college, she got a degree, she was a youth pastor. She had, she accomplished many things that somebody with two legs and two arms that work don't accomplish. She loved God. And it was written all over her in her demeanor and how she interacted with people. So in spite of life's circumstances, she spread the hope and the joy. I want to look at Romans uh, chapter 5 again, that, the verse today. So do you think that Job, Joseph, Abraham, and Sarah's suffering produced perseverance? I think it did. And then out of that perseverance, did it produce character? Do you think that their character produced hope? You know, they, they serve as a great example to us today. And, and I ask you the same question about the woman on the airplane that, that Bill told us about. You know, she's, she's more here in the now. This, this was a long time ago. But there are people that we rub shoulders with every day that have one of two stories, either a story of hope or maybe a, a story of, of despair. But I would say that, that this woman that was on the airplane, that she definitely had persevered and had endured and had come to her, where her character was, was hope and that she offered hope to others through her own life. Hebrews 6, 12, and 13. Bill shared this scripture last week. It's one of my favorite scriptures. It says, We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. You know, apparently hope is something that we can actually grab a hold of. It's an action that we intentionally take. And hope becomes an anchor in our life as we walk through this journey with God. Jesus told us, you know, build your foundation on the rock. It's not if the storm is coming, it's when the storm is coming. And if you don't have that anchor of hope in your life, when the storms come, you're going to get pretty battered up. It holds us steady through the storms of life. So hope as our anchor is very important to us as believers. So then how do we take hold of this hope? Well, Romans 12, 2 says one of the ways is by transforming our mind. This is one of my favorite scriptures. It says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. So we're told we need to transform our mind. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, Philippians 4.8 gives us a good clue. It says, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. So where is our mind? What are we thinking on? Are we constantly mentally rehearsing our bad day, our unfair circumstances, the injustices that have come upon us. And when we do that, we give room for the enemy to come and steal our joy and our hope that God has given us. Our focus becomes our circumstances instead of God. But Paul continues to say after that, he says, 
Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. This will indeed take practice. But I guarantee you that you'll have many opportunities to get it right. Dylan, would you come up? I'm going to have a little interview session with Mr. Dylan here. Um, as most of you know and are aware, if you've been here for any length of time, you've seen Dylan play the guitar, you've seen Dylan play the drums, and you've seen Dylan play the keyboards. He's a one-man band. So, Dylan, why did you want to play these instruments? Well, when, uh, when I was 10 years old, I uh, auditioned for my middle school band. And before that, I never really had any interest in playing music, but I think my dad had played drums whenever he was in school. And so he wanted me to at least try it out. And that's kind of where it started. So after playing that, I started playing drum sets, and I just really, really got invested in music. Okay. Did you take lessons? Um, I had the foundation by taking in school, but for the most part, I taught myself. You taught yourself. Okay. Did you hang out with other musicians? Uh, yeah, especially in high school, pretty much anyone who played guitar or drums or whatever. Common interest? And yeah. Did you learn from one another? Yeah, absolutely. I was surrounded by people that were way better at it than me. So okay. I just kind of stole things from them. Kind of sponged? Yeah. Yeah, absorbed uh, their stuff? Um, did, you know, as you practice up here, and I know you guys played uh, for Clute, uh, this week, uh, Christmas in the Park. Do you ever listen to a song over and over again to learn how to play it just right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, that's kind of part of it, right? Um, is there any one of the instruments that we've been talking about that you've practiced on more than the others? Uh, yeah, guitar. I had a really tough time with it. I always, anyone that I teach music or talk to about coming up against the wall, I talk about when I got a guitar when I was 14. And I had all these friends that were playing the guitar solos, and I got so frustrated with it, I gave it up for six months before I picked it up again and really got to the grindstone. And after getting past that, everything else, all the other instruments after were easier. Okay. So that was my main difficult one. Okay. All right. Thanks. Appreciate it. So the point that I want to share with you here is that, you know, Dylan wasn't born playing the drums, the guitar, or the keyboards. He practiced. Now, he had a desire to do it. But, you know, he, he hit the wall. He gave up guitar for six months, but he came back to it. And I think that this is the thing that we have to realize is that these things in our life that, that God longs for us to do, to, to grab a hold of, of hope, it takes practice. We practice these things. We practice. Our, our life is, is a series of practices of getting it right and God is gracious enough to forgive us when we stumble and good enough to pick us up when we fall and, and, and strengthens us to continue on and to carry on because maybe the next time we won't fall so far. And maybe then the next time we might not fall at all. We might just stumble. Then maybe the next time we might be standing firm. So it's a process. It's a journey. And it takes practice in our life. And that's the, way, that's the way it is with most of the things in our walk with God. We don't give up. We continue on. We have an active role to play in this. It's not just God infusing hope in us, God infusing faith in us. We have a part to play. It is an interactive relationship that we have with God. So we start by transforming our mind, okay? 
and we, and we practice it. When you find yourself caught up and in, in, in you're driving the car and you're just rehearsing the events of the day saying, man, something went wrong, ask, ask God to help you to stop that, as, to catch you as you're letting your mind get, get uh, thrown into turmoil. He'll do it. And then start, put some worship music on, which is my next, my next thing. And I'm really a big proponent of this. When you are struggling emotionally, mentally, put some worship music on. It is the best way to transform your heart and your mind. You just let it wash over you. And it washes over your mind, your spirit, your soul. It refreshes you. It saturates you. And before you know it, you're no longer angry. You're no longer frustrated. But instead, you're worshiping God. And you're not focusing on your circumstances, but you're focusing on God. And that's what God wants. God wants you to focus on him and to release those frustrations to him. You know, there's power in hope. Hope defends us against discouragement. Job 13, 15 said, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Psalms 25, um, verse 3, first part says, No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. And then there's Psalms 42, which I'm going to read to you. It's one of my favorite scriptures. I'm reading it in the New Living Translation, but in the NIV or King James, it says, As a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. But in the New Living Translation, it starts off, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you of God. I thirst for God, the living God. Where can I go and stand before him? Day and night, I have only my tears for food, while my enemies continually taunt me, saying, where is your God? My heart is breaking as I remember how it used to be. I walked among the crowds of worshipers, leading a great procession to the house of God, singing for joy and giving thanks amid the sound of great celebration. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. But now I'm deeply discouraged. But I will remember you. Even from the distant Mount Hermon, the source of the Jordan, from the land of Mount Mitzar, I hear the tumult of the raging seas as your waves and surging tides sweep over me. But each day the Lord pours his unfailing love upon me, and through each night I sing his songs, praying to God who gives me life. O oh God, my rock, I cry, why have you forgotten me? Why must I wander around in grief, oppressed by my enemies? They taunt, uh, their taunts break my bones. They scoff, where is this God of yours? Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. This is really powerful because I think you can see this cycle in David. It's like, oh man, God, I'm, I'm longing for you. I'm panting for you. And then it's, I'm taunted by my enemies. And they say, well, where is your God? And my heart is breaking. And why am I so discouraged? But each time he comes back to, I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again. So it's this, it's this kind of this up and down thing. He has these thoughts of despair, these thoughts of discouragement. But each time he has one of those, he goes back and says, I'm going to think about God. I'm going to remember what God has done for me. I'm going to put my hope in God. 
And then something else comes up. And he's like, he's thinking about it. And he's like, nope, nope, I'm going to put my hope in God. And so he's practicing putting his hope in God because he knows God is faithful to him. The mental struggle is very real. That's why we transform our minds because this is where it all starts. Also, hope activates faith. Um, Leslie, come on up. I've got another passage for her to read. This is out of Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verses 32 through 39. Um, it's part of the heroes of the faith. I need to say it would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, they ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half, and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute, oppressed, and mistreated. They were too good for this world wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. So we have some more people <clears throat> who were faithful to God, who suffered greatly, physically, unto death, but God had placed a hope in them that was able to give them endurance. And um, I think that that's really powerful, really powerful. Um, I'm going to read you a story um, it's from one of my favorite authors. I think I may, I've read from him before. His name is um, Ken Gear, and the name of the book is Intimate Moments with the Savior, and this particular story is regarding um, the woman who had, who had been bleeding for 12 years. I'm going to read you the scripture, and then I'm going to read you uh, what the author says. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt, her, felt in her body 
that she was freed from the suffering. At once Jesus realized the power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. God only knows how much she suffered. She has lived with a bleeding uterus for 12 humiliating years. She has been labeled unclean by the rabbis and subjected to the Levitical prohibitions, unable to touch others or to be touched, ostracized by the synagogue and orphaned by society, and orphaned also by God, or so she thinks. She has prayed. She has pleaded. For 12 agonizing years, God has been silent. During that time, she was, put on the city's back, she was put out the city's back door and shoved down its steps. Ever since, she has foraged in the side streets and alleyways for some scant leftovers of hope. Her eyes are downcast as you pass her by. She's self-conscious, ashamed, and afraid. She fears the condescension in your eyes. She fears the indifference of your shoulder turned coldly against her. But most of all, she fears the gavel you bring down on her life. She fears the rapt judgment that her illness is the direct result of some personal sin. And with, and with bleeding of the uterus, anyone could guess what kind of sin she could have committed. Sexual, no doubt, are the whispered innuendos. Some perversion, most likely, are the gossiped indictments. And so, besides the shame of the constant bleeding, she bears the burden of its stigma. She carries the weight everywhere she goes, trudging from doctor to doctor. She's tried to find a place to lay her burden down. The doctors have filled her mind with hopes and her body with folk remedies. But in the end, they only relieved her of her money. She's destitute now, and being out of money, the doctors finally admit that there's really nothing they can do for her. Her life is ebbing away. The steady loss of blood over the years has taken its toll. She's anemic, pale, and tired. So very, very tired. She's tired of the shame, tired of the stigma, tired of the charlatans. Only God knows how much she's suffered. Every illusion she'd had about life is shattered. Suffering has a way of doing that. And swept away with those illusions are dreams. Suffering has a way of doing that, too. She no longer dreams of marriage and a family, of combing the hair of a daughter or wiping the dirty face of a son, of bouncing a grandbaby on her knee or being taken care of in her old age by loved ones, of golden memories that she can treasure. Her suffering has whisked those dreams into little broken piles. But stories of another physician has reached down to pick up the pieces of those dreams, a physician who charges no fee, a physician who asks for nothing in return, who has no hidden agenda beyond making a sick world well again. She's heard of this physician, this Jesus who comes not to the healthy, but to the sick, who comes not to the strong, but to the downtrodden, who comes not to those with well-ordered lives, but to those whose lives are filled with physical and moral chaos, 
And she's heard of Jesus' success among incurables, the curing of the uncontrollable demoniac, the raising of a widow's son, the healing of a leper. A leper, she thinks. Another untouchable. Another orphan taken by the scruff of the neck and thrown from society's back door. The divine physician simply touched this disease-eaten man and he became clean and whole. Certainly, she thinks, if I can just find this Jesus and just touch the fringe of his garment, I too will be cleansed and made whole. And so with that thin thread of faith, this frail needle of a woman stitches her way through the crowd. Her tired frame is jostled by those clustered around Jesus. They are pressing him, brushing shoulders and rubbing against him, the curious, the eager, and the desperate. This desperate woman pushes her empty hand through a broken seam in the crowd and for a fleeting moment clutches the corner of his garment. Jesus is pulled back, not by the grasp of her hand so much as by the grasp of her faith. Power leaves him to surge through the hemorrhaging woman and immediately she feels the rush of her youthful health returning. In the flood of those feelings, she is released. She, she releases her grasp and is swept away by the crowd. But Jesus doesn't let her get away. Although the crowd was pressing in on him, her touch was different. And that touch stopped him in his tracks. How ready Jesus is to respond to the hand of outstretched faith. In obedience to his summons, she comes, trembling, flushed with embarrassment and fearful. But she comes. And between the lines of her confession... Punctuated haltingly by her tears, Jesus reads the whole story of the last 12 years. He sees the isolation. He sees the introspection. He sees the insecurity. God only knows how much she's suffered. The crowd blurs in the watery edges of her eyes. For an intimate moment, she sees only Jesus. And he sees only her. Face to face, physician and patient. And with the tender word, daughter, he gives this orphan a new home with the family of God. He gives her healing, and he gives her back her dreams. See, this woman was desperate, but she'd heard about Jesus. And it was the hearing of what he had done that gave her hope, which activated her faith to seek him out, and to touch his garment. The song that we sang this morning, James, go ahead and put that song up. I, I had asked Jeff if we could sing this, like 9 o'clock last night. I do that. I pull a, I'm preaching tomorrow card, so can you do this for me? And, um, but I really felt like this song embodies the message of hope. We see, blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful, where your streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. Yes, God, thank you and amen. But then there's blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Though I walk through the wilderness, blessed be your name. 
Then the next verse says, Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me and the world is all as it should be. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. But my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And it's kind of funny. I, I went over to Melinda right after we sang the song. And I'm, I'm, I know that, you know, you give and take away. It's, it's got to be in the scriptures. I've heard it before. And I asked Melinda. She goes, well, probably, but off the top of my head, I don't know. And so what is it? It's then the scripture I give to Leslie about Job. You give and take away. I'm like, I look at Melinda. <laughs> yep, it's there. It's in the scripture. God gives and God takes away. But Job said, blessed be the name of God, and he worshiped him. It's not an easy thing to do when you're hopeless. And the stories I've shared with you have been stories from the scripture, which are valid and true. But I want to give you a couple of personal stories of some friends of mine, so bear with me. I have two friends. Both of their names are Karen. One of them, well, both of them I met really at, at the founding of this church in a home group. We called it Friday Night Group. And uh, one of them had a daughter. She had two daughters, actually. Uh, that was, the oldest one was in school in, in Lafayette, Louisiana. She was a, a, a single mom. She had about an 18-month-old uh, little boy. And one day, her daughter was killed. And she wasn't just killed, she was murdered. Somebody came into her apartment and they slit her throat. She's about 21. So we went to the funeral. There was a group of us that went, about five or six of us in a van, went over to the funeral. There were, the, the church was packed. This had made the news uh, in the paper as well as on the TVs there in Lafayette that a young 21-year-old woman had been murdered in her apartment. They didn't know who did it. And um, so they, the service begins, and it was, a, it was a wonderful time of worship. And it was back when the Hillsong's um, song, Shout to the Lord, was out. It was very popular, and it's one of my favorite songs. And as they began to sing that song, Karen and her husband Paul stood up, and they worshiped God. And we followed their lead. The whole congregation stood up and we worshiped God. In a time of what could be seen as hopelessness, we worshiped God. That's one story. The story of the other Karen. The other Karen lived uh, on County Road 400 on the Brazos River. And that's where this church really had its beginning birth pangs there. And uh, her husband, Mike, uh, was a believer, but he hadn't always been. He had been an alcoholic, and he, I think he'd been pretty abusive when he used to drink. And they had two, two sons, Dylan and uh, Casey. Casey was a musician, and he would lead us in worship on Friday nights when we would meet, and the Spirit of God was just so prevalent there. And at, at some point, Casey um, kind of went to be with a worship band, 
uh, that was out of Houston, and they did some touring. They went overseas to England and some places, and this is in like middle 90s, 95, 96 time, time frame. And uh, Casey was, I don't know, I, he wasn't 18 yet, I don't think, maybe 17. But, uh, but he, was, he was traveling with the, these folks, and they ended up settling kind of in the Phoenix area. And so Mike and Karen decided that they really felt that that's where they needed to go as well. Mike had been an accountant here for, for a company for a long time, and they picked up their other son, Dylan, who was still in school, and they moved to Phoenix. And, and they were there, I don't even think they were there two years. It's, it's been a while now. I, I can't remember exactly. And um, they came home one day, Dylan came home one day, found his dad. He'd killed himself. He'd hung himself. He'd, he'd gotten depressed. He hadn't found a job yet. They'd been there for a while. His wife had found a job. Even his son had found a job. But for whatever reason, Mike had not been able to find a job. Karen hadn't seen the signs, you know, hadn't read it, that the suffering that Mike was going through. And, you know, when you hear about somebody taking their life, you kind of think, ah. It's just a hard thing, especially when they're a believer. But I always, my hope was that people would know who Mike really was and that he's not defined by his death, but he was defined more by his life. And that the enemy came and stole from him. And I have no doubt I will see Mike again. But at his funeral, Casey had written a, a, a song on the plane that he actually performed at his own dad's funeral. And that, that worship team that Casey was a part of was there. And it was at Second Baptist Church in Lake Jackson. And the place was filled. And we worshiped God. And his wife, Karen, worshiped God. And it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I ran into Karen about four or five years ago when I went through Living Waters up in Houston. She had seen the... Uh, it had been advertised maybe in her church or someplace, I forget exactly, but for nine months we reconnected and it was just wonderful. They had been a powerful impact on my life and good friend and, you know, still walking with God. But a few years later, after this had happened, her son uh, Dylan had joined the um, Coast Guard and had served there for a couple of years, got out and settled in Corpus Christi and he began to be depressed and he called his mom and was talking with her and he was telling her that he was going to take his life. He just couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't take the pain anymore. And she said, she tried her best. Dylan, it's, it's going to be okay. Don't, you know, don't do anything. Every, let, me, let me get down there. You know, she was in the Houston area. I'll come down tomorrow. No, mom, it's okay. And after a few minutes, he says, look, I, I got to go. There's somebody at the door. So they hung up and um, she just had a feeling something wasn't right, obviously. So she called some relatives that lived close by. Within 30 minutes or an hour, she called him because she tried calling Dylan back on the phone. He didn't answer. He didn't answer. And uh, so their family member went over there, and Dylan had taken his life. So now Karen has not only lost a husband to suicide, but she lost her youngest son to suicide as well. That was not a funeral I was able to attend to at the time. But when I saw her, you know, uh, at Living Waters, and interestingly enough, that's not why she was at Living Waters, uh, for those of you who are familiar with that. There was some other things that were going on in her life. But 
She was a woman of hope, of great hope and great faith. And I will not forget these women, my friends, who went through horrific things, but they had hope. So James put up Romans 5, 2. Uh, I think it's the last slide. I want to go over this one more time. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. Hope becomes most evident in hopelessness or difficult situations. Um, I'd like for you guys to go ahead and stand, please. <clears throat> 